3, 9. It's an amazing passage of uniformity that we have, the unity we have in Jesus, yet not losing anything um, that would be uh, distinct or unique to you. There's beauty in that. Everything in this world is beautiful because of university and uh, university, that is unity and diversity. Here is Colossians 3, that you would see how complete you are in Jesus Christ. Paul says, verse 9, Now, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Old and new, taking off and on. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, But Christ is all, and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness from the heart. That's the only way to sing, is from the heart. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he pivots and he turns. His turn is so important to see. After seeing everything he's done in this letter, particularly what we just read, he says, wives, Submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And then lastly, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants, your slaves that is, justly, And fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Everything that has been this majestic, glorious truth spoken about Jesus Christ throughout the whole letter of Colossians now ties in to the most grocery list, almost mundane, simple charges to individual people inside of a house. I want you to be encouraged 
by the reality that the letter would end this kind of way. See, there is nothing, there is nothing that is holy like the triune God. But God has made everything. And in everything that we see, we see images or glimpses of his nature. So there's nothing that is holy like the triune God. And if you ever try to do that, you'll end up making a really big mistake. It's always famous, people say, St. Patrick always said that the Trinity was like a three-leaf clover. And that's not a good way to do theology. No, it's not a three-leaf clover. But a three-leaf clover, DNA, the sunlight, photons, protons, and everything in between beautifully shows you something of the unity of the way this world works and the immense diversity that makes it beautiful. Anything that's beautiful in this world functions on that. The light, the spectrum of light that refracts and makes a whole hue of the rainbow. That's beautiful. There's one spectrum of light, but it is manifested in so many different ways. You have the the sound that can work together and synchronize to make a beautiful song, a harmonic collection of sound waves bouncing off the wall. That is unified It's organized diversity. It's beautiful. Everything in this world is like that. Anything that is beautiful, that we, that our hearts are, are, that our hearts flutter toward. It's, it's, it's playing upon that kind of beauty. What we have here is, is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That he is immediately beautiful and complete. You cannot take from him or add to him, but... But he creates things that are absolutely unified and also diverse. And that is for his glory. God loves making stuff that way. He made the whole world that way. And in some way, in part, it shows his actual nature that he is like this. That he is organic. That he is a one in many. That he is complex and beautiful. And this is what we say when we find our vocabulary failing us. And we just say he is glorious. He is glorious. So Paul starts off with something so common that we have mentioned The taking on and off. He says, put on this new self. Take off the old self. Why? Because there is a unity. Unity is the phrase of one identity. That you as a Christian are identified with Jesus. That is your identity. If someone were to ask you on the street, who are you? You could say, I am a father. You could say, I am a mother. You could say, I am a Caucasian. You could say, I am an African American. You could say all sorts of things. But you would be lying if the first thing you said was, I'm a Christian. There is nothing. There is nothing in the children of God's identity more fundamental than that. I am in Christ. That is who I am. Everything else is accidental. Everything else can come and go. But who I am is in Christ. That's, see, that's unifying. That we as a church can all say that. I am in Christ. And that is the most important identity I have. We speak about it this way, don't we? With clothing and identity. What do we say when someone has uh, many hats? Oh, he wears many hats. She has a lot of hats to wear at work. She's identified with many types of article of clothing. 
You have this hat for this job, or you're a mother, or your father, or your coworker. You have all sorts of hats or responsibilities. We, we speak that way as your identity is wrapped up in your clothing. This is the ultimate identity. That he says, you've taken off the old, taken off the old man's clothes and put on the new man, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is this new identity. He is the image of the creator, Paul says. This new humanity, this new person, which is Jesus. That's why he says earlier, as we've seen, to set our mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on these things above. Why? For Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. There's no other phrase that could be more dramatic to your identity. Jesus is your life. Right? Like what sustains he upholds all things and sustained by the word of his power. Paul goes on to speak about that in the letter, that he upholds all things. Right? Your life is upheld by him. If you dare identify with anything that's not Jesus, your own existence is predicated on this identity, that Jesus is your life. He is your identity. And the beauty of what's to come is that the identity, the work he's doing in you, that you are in Christ and he is in you, and your life is, he says, hidden with Christ. That is, not everyone looks like a Christian. Just look like a normal person. Look like a black person. Look like a white person. Just, and, and that is the way the world works. We look at each other by these standards. And we judge each other by these standards. And we divide each other by these standards. And we fight each other by these standards. And now, even particularly in our age, it's critical race theory in the sense that we hate racism, therefore we're going to divide everybody by their race even more and start class warfare. Like, there, if, there, if there is nothing in Jesus Christ, then, then really all we can do is just redefine ourselves on weird identities and find differences to fight one another. But if Christ, who is our life, appears... That secretness of what's locked up treasures, treasures hidden in jars of clay that will come out someday in which you see the glory of Jesus Christ and you'll be made like him. And your inner glory that has been locked up in there, the beauty of Jesus Christ, will come out and your outer man, your outer body will glow in glory and brightness and beauty. So the inner dress that we're talking about, putting on Jesus Christ, is discreet. It's not seen. But what actually follows is a manifestation of that outer reality. That it will be someday that when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. I um, went to a Catholic private school uh, as a uh, younger boy. Very close here in Greensburg. Aquinas Academy. Thomas Aquinas, after the name of a great theologian. Now, we had to wear uniforms at that school. And I remember them distinctly because they were very uncomfortable. I had to wear a very thick um, uh, navy blue type of pants that was kind of ironed down the, the middle. And it was kind of starchy. It was, uh, they were kind of like military pants. They were not the kind of ones you were going to fall asleep in school easily in. Um, and it was a, uh, fortunately a cotton uh, shirt, a polo, it could either be white or light blue, and that was the uniform at Aquinas Academy, a little Aquinas Academy emblem. I remember it, the, you know the memories you have when you're young, there's certain images that are just there, and I remember that uniform. Now I also remember 
that the way the school is positioned on top of the hill in Greensburg is that across the main street there is the public school, elementary, Greensburg Elementary Public School. And so my days would usually close uh, at the school with us coming out to the front, and there's a very large sidewalk in which all the kids would be lined up based on their locations for the buses to come pick them up. And around that same time, all the public school kids right across the street, like literally across the street, like 20 feet away, are all getting lined up to go on their buses. And I remember standing there with my little backpack and my very uncomfortable pants looking at all them, and they all got to pick their clothes that day. And they all got to be more comfortable, and they're all running around. They seemed a little, maybe just, you know, the grass is always, the sidewalk's always greener across the street. And you look across, and you're like, look at those public school kids with their cool clothes, and here I am. And that memory's there, the uniform that I, that I had to wear. I learned something, though, the next year when I transferred to public school in sixth grade. I learned the difference of what appearances feel like and what inner reality is. Because that next year, after fifth grade, I moved to a public school in Latrobe. And in fifth grade was a rough year in the sense that the kids were getting older and you're more free at that age. And our bathroom time at a Christian private school was pretty wild. Um, There was... Uh, water running constantly, experiments to see what could be flushed down the toilet. I mean, it was, it was chaos. It was chaos. The, the teachers could barely keep track of us. Uh, the children were disrespectful in class, always interrupting and saying rude things. Remember, they would actually, uh, the kids would wet, wet paper towels and throw them up on the bathroom ceiling to see how long they'd stick, and then paint would come down. Remember one kid, and I mean seriously, one kid I remember urinating on the wall in the bathroom, a bunch of fifth grade boys with no adults around. And that's my uniformed, good old Catholic school experience. And so naturally, the next year as a young boy, when I transferred to sixth grade public school, I thought, I better buy a switchblade, I guess, because it's going to get out of control at public school. <laughs> and this is where I learned that. We all go to the bathroom. And all the boys walk into the bathroom and behave like young little men and then leave the bathroom after washing their hands. And they spoke respectfully to their teachers and there wasn't chaos in the class. And I remember as a young boy thinking, appearances, uniforms, regiment, collars, and starched pants. That was the lie of it all that I saw that it really is an inner reality to all this. That actually, it's the other way around, and appearances are deceiving. Look at the gospel that we've been given. You once walked in this earthly way when you were living in them. Now you must put them all away. All these clothes must come off. Anger and wrath and malice, and slander, and obscene talk. The only way these clothes come off is by doing what we were told earlier, is to look up to heaven and contemplate Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Seek those things above. Because then if you can see him that way, your anger will melt. 
The wrath that God has upon your life and everything that's been forgiven in you and all the, the Psalm 5 that God has described as a man whose nostrils are flared because of the fight or flight response of his adrenaline. That he is furious with you and your sin. And then he goes and gives his own son to save you. That that anger is subsided. That the, the, the son opens up his own flesh and exposes his own blood. And the anger goes away. It washes away. It is satisfied for you. If that contemplation, that will melt all the anger in your life. It will just, it will just fall right off you. And wrath is the fruit of that anger. That is, oh, you're angry. Someone has wronged you. And therefore, I must be excessive in punishing them. I must be wrathful. And the close follow to that is malicious. That is to hurt someone for the sake of hurting someone. That there will be no redemption in you hurting them. There's no harsh word for criticism for their good. It's just a harsh word of criticism just because it's a harsh word that cuts them. That that would be the kind of thing that this world functions on. This is how you and I used to live this is what Paul assumes, not even meeting the church of Colossae. He says, you all once walked like this. I don't even know your names. I never met you. I know this is how you are because we're all this way. We're all this self-righteous and angry and slanderous and wrathful when anyone contradicts us because we think that we are God. But now you come to see the one true living God. And he is more loving than you would dare even imagine. And therefore, all these things must come off of you. And then the reverse is that you should have this clothing of Christ. And no, it is not. It is not preppy school clothes. Everything here listed is immaterial. It's not seen. What is it? Compassion. Two people could look entirely different. One has a heart. That is vicarious, that is empathetic, that turns with what is wrong in the world. One has a heart that is compassionate and kindness and humility and meekness, patience, meekness. So you're a meek person. There is no awards in this world for being meek. Nobody cares if you're meek. If you are meek, you actually are so not cared about, you're forgotten. You're not going to be on the nightly news. No one's going to be studying you in the history books. You will be forgotten in the ash dump of history if you are meek. Because you're the one that's always trying to find the synthesis. Always trying to find the peace. Always trying to not put your own will into anything. Always trying to bring what is good out of a situation. And those kind of people don't run for president, let's say. But that is what you're called to do. To be a meek person. Honing in on this one, though, is kindness. And I love the word kindness. There is a reality to all of these articles of clothing are, let's just say, manly clothing. Not that it wouldn't be for men or women. But particularly, everything I've just said to you is not idolized as masculinity. But these are the clothes of Jesus Christ, the man. It is manly. It is manly to be compassionate. It is manly to be kind. Why would kindness be so important? Kindness. This beautiful question is asked. 
in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, where we're told, why did he save you? Like, consider the heart of God. If you can see this, you will be a kind person. Why did God save you? It was because of nothing in you. There was not one speck. There was not one glimmer of light in which you were not condemned in your sin. There was no reason. There was nothing on your resume. There was no argument you could make. Ephesians 2, 7, he says, by grace. And it has to only be by grace because grace means nothing. Pure gift. Absolutely no reason at all. For by grace you have been saved. He says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And then it says, so. In other words, saying, why did he do that? Why did he demonstrate such great loving kindness and mercy to you? So, Ephesians 2, 7, that in the coming ages, ages upon ages, thousands of years upon thousands of years from now, that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward you in Christ. Pause on that. God is jealous that in the ages, the eternal aeon to come, that you would be broken, that your glory, that your praise, your worship of him in heaven would be fueled by the revelation of his kindness toward you. Being kind. Not just saying like, oh, I just have a hard type of love where I, I just say things the way they are and I just let the chips fall where they may and because I just, I have to tell the truth because that's what love is, which is true. But there's a kindness to godliness. There is a reality in which you are the gentle person. You have been given so much that your worship for ages and ages will be because of this Immense kindness demonstrated to you in the Son, Jesus Christ. And that you will look upon it and look upon it and look upon it for year after year. And always glimpse back to him again raptured by the mystery of why would you do this for me? Why would you love me like you have? And it's all for one purpose, he says here. is so that you would see that God is kind. He is so Kind. Everything in this world that is cruel, whether they be tornadoes or very rude neighbors, there will be a time in which the Lord will flip that and he will say, that was not me. The evil in this world, everything that happened because of the curse, yes, it was there, I caused it, all this stuff, But that is not the glory I want to show you. That was to show you the blackness, the evilness of how dark it could be. So that when I take you away from that, when I take you away from this present age, in the ages to come, you will see my kindness and the beauty of it in such a way that all your questions and answers over what is evil, why did that person die, what about that car wreck and this cancer, it will all be washed away and you will see me in all my kindness and all the answers will be there and you will know that that is me, that I am kind. And the centerpiece of it all, the beginning from this age to that next, is a son on the cross for you. 
that that will be the fulcrum, the turning point in which God's kindness has been and will be and even in greater ways manifested for your mind to behold for all the days. This is what we're supposed to clothe ourselves with now. We're supposed to have something of that to give to the world. A certain kindness, meekness, patience. But the only way to do that is the way Paul describes is that considering. See, if it were just as simple as putting on your clothes in the morning, this wouldn't be that complicated. But it is hard. It is hard for our hearts to love the way God loves and to put on these virtues that he has particularly prepared for us. Like when a small child's getting ready for school, you know, your mother or father might set the clothes out early in advance and saying, by the way, when you get up, little Johnny, these are the clothes you're going to wear. And then little Johnny says, I'd rather put on anger, wrath, and malice, please. And then Christ says, no, these are the clothes you're going to wear. Humility, gentleness, and kindness, and meekness. But how could we dress ourselves that way? Bear one another's burdens. Be long and suffering. If there's a complaint, forgive one another. Here's the trick. Forgive one another. How? As the Lord's forgiven you. Do you see what he did? Every time Paul wants you to put on these clothing, the only way you're going to get them on is by looking to Jesus. By considering him, you will be clothed by him. So you need forgiveness? Remember, he's forgiven you. Consider Jesus. If you lack forgiveness and you're in a place where it's very hard to put on that forgiveness jacket and the last thing you want to do is dress around in forgiveness, consider how he, for, consider how he forgave you and then the clothing will follow. It's a meditative practice. This is a spiritual exercise. If you've been raised with Christ, we're told already to seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things above. All the way these clothing are going to come on you is by seeking, by setting your mind, by meditating. Lastly, he says, above all these, put on love. Meditate upon the love of God. Wrap yourself up in it every day before you go out into the world. It's a very clear analogy of how we actually live our lives this way. You would not leave your house in the morning improperly dressed. Maybe to get the mail and you do it very quickly. The reality is you would be uncomfortable You get up in the morning and you put your pants on. And you go outside appropriately dressed. Do you get up in the morning before work, before the children, and personally set your mind on things above? This is how you get dressed in the morning. This is how you put on the clothing of Jesus Christ. And if you are not intentionally setting your mind on the things above, So that these qualities would be yours. That you would possess them. That you would wear them as if they were your own identity. And that you would begin to live as you leave your front door to do whatever God's bidding has for you that day. That you will be full of love and compassion and kindness. And the world will see that. Let them see it all. The only way you can do that is by considering him day to day. It is just as shameful. You would never leave your house without your pants. But the reality is our nakedness and the shame of our sin actually happened on the same day in the garden. Where he saw he was naked, but he also knew he was sinful. For the few minutes we have, I'd like to look at this new identity 
To make the case, what I'm saying is everything that Jesus is, is a new identity for us. And it's evident because of the way Paul immediately goes to apply all of this. He goes straight for something that is needed, relevant for us today. Look at verse 11 particularly. It says that since we are a new humanity, a new identity, put in the new person, therefore, therefore, there is not a Greek or a Jew. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Does our world not need to hear that? There is not a Greek or a Jew. There is not a circumcised or uncircumcised, a barbarian, a Scythian, a slave, or free. He says, but Christ is all. And in all, the list he describes is selfish. It's egocentric. But by that I mean is Jewish people refer to themselves as Jewish people. And everyone else that was not Jewish was called Gentile. You see how that's egocentric? The, the very definition of the term is oriented to yourself. There is me and those who are not me. That's identity. Identity politics and whatever you might have. The reverse, the same thing in the Greek world. He says here, Greeks. Jews or Greeks. Greeks had the same exact vocabulary. They didn't call them Gentiles. They called them barbarians. Egocentric. You're either a Greek like me, speaking Greek like me, having a Greek culture and education like me, or you are literally anyone from Spain to the Gauls to Britannia. It doesn't matter. Like everyone else that was not Greek was barbarian. Barbarian. They say the word barbarian most likely comes from the phrase barbar, which is pretty much saying what anyone sounds like that doesn't speak Greek. Which sounds like what? Can you consider your worldview biblically? Didn't we all want to unite ourselves around a big tower that became called Babel? False unity. Barbarians. Babylonians. They, they're not like me. It's me or those who are not like me. And Paul flips it all to say, no, you are Christians. This world is not your home. You've been born from above. There is a new Jerusalem, which is your mother, he says in Galatians. And therefore he says, all of these are irrelevant categories. Do not let anyone put these categories on you. Instead, he says, all of you are in Christ. So that Christ might be in all. That is, Jesus is the identity. Only Jesus, Christ, is all. That is the basis of any real unity that we could have as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. And for the world, you see. The point of all this is not just to talk about the church. The beginning of the letter opens by saying that Paul is intending to express Jesus Christ as complete. To unite heaven and earth, creation, moons and stars and Pluto, and plates of grass and cows. It's all to be united in Christ. And we, the church, are the spearhead, the vanguard, or a demonstration of a new age that is breaking in. And if we are to do this, we must do this by demonstrating the unity that is falling upon this old 
creation in Jesus Christ. And that only can be demonstrated by us being primarily united and identified in him. That is why he takes this immediate turn and symbolizes this unity and diversity. And immediately after saying all this, he says, now that since there's no Greeks or Jews... There's no barbarians, Scythian slaves are free. And the Scythians were just simply worse than the barbarians. They were so bad that they weren't even considered uncultured barbarians. They were considered less cultured Scythians up in the north. He says, you might even be one of those. Here's the deal. When you get together at church, I want you to sing psalms. (laughs) That the singing of the church demonstrates to the world that Jesus Christ is alive. That he is inside me. That we're united upon these things. And the singing that maybe you are a soprano, a tenor, a baritone, or a bass. All that diversity coming together for one song in the name of Jesus Christ. On the day of the Lord of Jesus Christ. For the world to know that there is a king of kings named Jesus Christ. That we're united that way. And he chooses to do it by music. Unity. Beauty. And the amazing turn of it all is after saying that there is no distinction among you this way, he immediately goes on, look at the verse, verse 18. Wives, well, wait a minute. If we're all the same, and in Galatians it says there's not even male or female, right? Here he says, now wives, you are the same as your husband's. You are all one in Christ. But now the distinctions come out. That these distinctions are to be beautiful. They are what make the church different. They're always going to make the church different. Wives, submit to your husbands, he says, as is fitting to the Lord. You see what the redemption is that Jesus is working. That every area or institution of life is being redefined by him. That marriage. Now, the Roman law used to say... um, if you were to read a Roman law, and what Paul is mirroring here is very similar, is it would be a household code in Roman law in which only the husband would be addressed. He would be addressed first. He would, only, he would be addressed, so he would say, husbands, make sure your wives obey. Husbands, make sure your children. So it was only addressing the husbands, and it uses the word obey. Paul flips that and deliberately addresses wives first to just mess the whole order up. So the distinctions aren't so patriarchal and rigid. And then he says, don't obey your husbands. Submit to them in the Lord. Because your primary identity, not white, not black, you're not even single, a bachelor, a wife, or a husband. Your primary identity is in the Lord, but you also secondarily are a wife, so submit to your husband in the Lord. According to the Lord. Anything contrary your husband has for you that is not according to the Lord, tell him, I'm sorry, but my Lord will not let me. But anything that is within that rubric, demonstrate unity by submitting. Same thing he says to the husbands. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. See, he goes right after this male bravado that is so toxic in our land. Don't be harsh. Be a leader in your home. It's your responsibility. You're the federal head of the home. It is your fault if anything's wrong. So be a leader and don't do it harshly. Do it as the Lord led you without wrath. He's gentle and kind and meek, remember? Put those on and I'll be a husband. Put your pants on and lead the family. Lead your wife in devotion. Lead your children through the word of God. 
Lead them in their education. Be involved in every aspect of their life. Do not be distant. Do not be hands off. Do not just let your wife have to figure it all out. It is your responsibility. The Lord will come for you first. And don't be harsh in any way you do it. Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? Your identity is the Lord. Why? Obey your children in everything for it pleases the Lord. It changes everything. Your relationship to your parents is out of worship to God. Jesus is working to unite everything this way. Then he goes on to say, Slaves, obey your masters and everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but in sincerity of heart. Why? Working heartily for the Lord. Again, we're all united in Jesus, and we do everything we have individually because of the Lord in unity and in peace. Work heartily for the Lord and not for men. And then he flips the reverse on masters and says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Why? Do we know the answer? Because you have a master in heaven. Again, identity, all in the Lord. That identity is what produces all the unity that we need in this life. That we need to demonstrate. Because, and the closing here is to say, an encouragement by this. It is... The little things that matter. It is the little things that really matter. Everything that Paul has said here in this letter is some of the most beautiful and glorious things that you could say about the one true God. But he ends this letter with some of the most simple and mundane things that would easily be forgotten. He says, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. That through him, he might reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And then he goes on to say, little children, obey your parents. Husbands, live lovely with your wives. Wives, submit and respect your husbands. Does that connect for you? The fact that we could say something like, Jesus Christ, the fullness of God, in time, bodily dwelling, dying on the cross, making peace with heaven and earth, we better get out there and get it done. Because we are going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And instead, Paul just pulls aside and says, now children, obey your parents. And love one another. And be meek and mild. And mind your own business. And serve one another. That is is the wisdom of the gospel. Why did he come as the nameless carpenter? Why did he do all that he did? Why was he nothing more than one more criminal on the cross of Rome? He's modeling for you, you see. No one is going to know your name, most likely. No one's going to study you in the history books. The majority of all of your life is nothing more than mundane moments. But see, here's the thing. If your identity is in Christ, there is no little moment. God cares. He cares about your kitchen. He cares about your dining room. He cares about your bedroom and your backyard. See, well, why would that be important? No one sees that except a few. Maybe the children or my wife or husband. Why do I have to always speak so tenderly and kindly and not be bitter in my speech and rude and toxic and... 
well, why do I have to be clothed this way? Because no one's really going to see anything. See, but he sees that. He is everywhere and watching all. God does not have an ego trip. He doesn't care to be popular. He doesn't care for you to be popular. Everything you're doing is important to him, to him. No one else will know what your family's like. No one else will know what your marriage is like. But he knows. And because he knows, it's so important. Is that not the point of worshiping? Is that even though no one would know anything about your life, even down to your very thoughts, that he's there with you in your thoughts, and therefore that is the most important audience at all. That everything you do it becomes immediately important. And that his changing and, and, and restoring the world is in these moments. If he cannot unite heaven and earth, he will do it by the same power of uniting broken marriages. He will do it by the same power of bringing laughter to a dinner table. He will do it by the same power of bringing joy to a home. That is salvation. That is the shalom, the peace that we are looking for. And he works at the micro level. The micro level is important. Make it important to yourselves. And we will look in the next sermon series in microeconomics. Economics means house law. So when we say we have a sermon series on economics, it's the little things, the laws of the house, that really do change the world. Dear Father, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with the microness of our life, the littleness of our life. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased in the way we relate to one another and love one another. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to see the rewards of your son, that you have produced a gentle and quiet life, one that is meek and mild, one that is kind. Oh, Father, we pray that you would produce kindness in us. We ask, Father, that we would sing now with all of our hearts in a perfect unity because of what you've done for us on that cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we close our service singing, Take My Life and Let It Be.